Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, June 9th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. As probably all of our listeners know by now, Clifton Emmeheiser had suffered a bad fall in his home last August, so we moved him here to Florida to stay with us. Just before his accident, Clifton had sent me a few short essays to proofread, and finally, after 10 months, I have been getting around to it. We posted two of those essays on his website this morning. The first one we had presented here in a discussion just a few weeks ago, which was Pitfalls Found in Biblical Research Materials, Part 1. I labeled that Part 1 and not Clifton hoping to encourage him to write a sequel, because it is a topic about which I am certain he has a lot more to say. Now we have Clifton here with us once again to discuss the second of those essays, which I also posted to his website this morning, which he titled, Covenant Theology versus Replacement Theology. Clifton, thanks for being here. Um, I'm thankful to be here. I'm sure. <laughs> At 91 years old, I'd be pretty thankful to be here, too. How you doing? How you feeling? Well, pretty good. Yeah, feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. I see you're a ball of fire. You want to get a lot of research done. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, well, anyway, a few years ago, you wrote a couple of short essays titled the Insane Doctrine of Personal Salvation versus Covenant Theology. And that was two parts, one and two. And you and I made two podcasts out of them back in August of 2013. Maybe you remember that. We're always looking for things to say to make Judeo-Christians, or as you call them here, Judeotards, think about biblical truth. So tonight we try that again. Do you have anything to say to that? <laughs> well, let's get with it. Well, well, this paper we present tonight is mostly a letter that you wrote last July in reply to a cousin who's evidently one of those Judeo-tards, right? Yeah, right. So, so perhaps maybe you could give us some background first, what your relationship, and, and you told me about this back when I was still in prison, about your relationship with your uncle Merrill. And the schism in the family, which was caused when you discovered Christian identity. Yeah, right. Well, uh, Uncle Merrill was um, on the ran wrong track on a whole a whole bunch of things. So uh, he was my favorite uncle, but uh, uh, uh uh, he finally did call me up one time and uh, kind of wrote me off. So <laughs> He wrote you off? Yeah, right. Th didn't you get – I know over the years that you had a lot of your inspiration for a lot of the papers that you wrote from people you were arguing with. Yeah, right. Wasn't Merrill one of those people? Yeah, he, he was about as wrong on things as you could get. Uh so when we encounter people like that in, in our lives, isn't that good inspiration for, for wanting to dig, dig deeper and try to prove our own position? Yeah, right. 
So, so you evidently had a resulting dialogue in letters with both your uncle and his son, and it's his son, your cousin, whom you're addressing here. Yeah, right. Do you have, um, how many letters did you exchange with um, Merrill Jr., Samuel, you call him here? Just a couple. Uh, it, it, uh, I kind of kept it short. And I guess he's probably a little younger than you because you were corresponding with him here just last July. This is only 10, 10 11 months ago. Yeah. Is he Merrill's son or grandson? Well, because... he's, uh, there's Merrill uh, Sr. and Merrill Jr. So he's Merrill Jr. Yeah. So he's your first cousin, but he's kind of younger than you, I, I suppose? Uh, yeah, he's, he's younger than I am. I just can't imagine too many people being older than you, except for maybe Methuselah. And... <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to do that. You, you might want to read the, your um, introduction to your to your little essay here that's basically based on this that this letter to your own cousin. Uh, conversation. Clifton seemingly has picked. Oh, the following is a reply letter from uh, me to one of my cousins, who is a church anity judeotard. Uh, wanting to bring all the non-white, unclean, race-mixed bipeds uh, not created by the Almighty into the kingdom of heaven and violate the covenant given exclusively to Abraham, Isaac, and the 12 tribes of Judah, 12 tribes of Israel, and their descendants. I have tried very hard, vigorously, evidently to no avail, uh, sending uh, pertinent material to him in favor of covenant theology and against replacement theology. Well, let me say it first. You, you, you've evidently, you know, I know we spent a good deal of time at your home before you wrote this paper. We were at your home in June last year. You evidently picked up a, some of the language that we use on social media, like Judeo-tard. And I thought it was funny that you used that term in his paper. Well, I, I think I've done, done that after the fact. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I was using that back then. But. Well, well, it's good to see a 90-year-old man be able to learn new words and, and, and use new terms. That's all I'm saying, right? I'm just trying to give you some credit for that. <laughs> we thought it was funny when we saw that in, in his paper that you used that term. That's all. That's a term that developed pretty recently in Christian identity circles on Facebook. I don't know if I'm the one who coined it or if somebody else coined it, but it works. I mean, Judeo-tard is basically what to call those Judeo-Christians, right? It's yeah. a good term for them. That This is evidently the last letter that you sent to your cousin, who may not know that you even moved to Florida a short time later, do you want to write him again? Do you expect to hear from him again? <laughs> Probably not, eh? Um, I, I don't think it would um, advance uh, his position very much. You don't think he's going to change his mind? No. Uh, I, I, I wrote a letter to, uh, to him uh, 
July 18th, 2017. Received your letter of 7-12-17 a few days ago, uh, along with a miniature two and a half by two inch booklet uh, with 16 pages published by Amazing Grace Mission, Dayton, Tennessee, and distributed by the First Baptist Church, Bettsville, Ohio. So, so your cousin's going to prove to you that you're wrong based on this little booklet that he sent you from a ch church in Ohio. Yeah, right. Bettsville's only a short way from Fostoria, so it's he must... Half, halfway between Fostoria and Fremont. Yeah, so he actually attends that church. Uh, at least he did for a while. Okay. You might want to go on with your letter. <clears throat> uh, you, you stated in your letter... God has made of one blood all the nations of the earth, Acts 17.26. God is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 2.9. Uh, we are all the same before God. God is no respecter of persons, Romans uh, 2.11. Then I... I uh, uh, well, well, right. That's his three verses that prove that you're wrong, right? Yeah. That, and and they're all taken out of context. Right. And I, I uh, uh, evidently wrote back to him. Uh, I'm sure that you sent. Uh, I sent you sufficient data from several sources to confirm that the word blood is not found in many of the older manuscripts at eight, Acts uh, 17.26, but evidently you did not study uh, the matter thoroughly enough to show yourself approved of God, the God whom you quote so freely out of context. So this is an ongoing dis debate because he had sent you something and then you sent him information on Acts chapter 17. Verse 26, and, and then he wrote you black, and now you're answering him again. So you're really going on and on with your own family over this Christian identity issue. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, to show that I'm not without adequate evidence on this fact, I searched through uh, my several Bibles and found 10 without the word blood, at Acts 17.26, thusly, the American Standard Version, uh, two, the Douay um, Reims Version, three, the English Standard Version, which has one man, not one blood, uh, a new American Version, uh, that's, that's four, uh, five, new uh, international version, which has uh, from one man, um, six, uh, new uh, international version, uh, 1984, which has from one man, uh, the Living Bible, which has from one man, uh, revised standard version, uh, Smith and Good, uh, Smith and Goodspeed version, which has from one forefather, not one blood, uh, the Weymouth uh, New Testament, which has offspring from one forefather, 
and that forefather could only be have been Adam, uh, who was a white man who could show blood in the face, i.e. have the ability to blush, strong Hebrew um, uh, number 119. Merrill Jr., inasmuch as you cited Acts 17.26, I will quote from the Revised Standard Version. Uh, and he made uh, one nation of men to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. Uh, note, no blood. So, so the Revised Standard Version actually didn't add a word. Most of these other versions you cited added a word man or, or, or blood, which isn't in the text. The Revised Standard Version actually didn't add a word. Yeah, you know, I think that's useful just to show Judeo-Christians that sometimes the versions don't agree with each other on a translation because the text isn't really saying what any of them think it's saying. Right. You, you might want to address what he had. Um... Merrill Jr., and as much as you cited Acts 17.26, I will quote from the Revised Standard Version. And he made from one every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having determined uh, allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. And there's no word blood there, so so that should get him to think, right? Uh-huh. The center reference of my King James uh, Bible directs me to Deuteronomy 32.8, which reads, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of men, he fixed the bounds of the people according to the number of the sons of the Almighty, for Yahweh... Well, his portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted uh, heritage. This doesn't sound like we are all the same before God. I have one question, and that this is a slight criticism, but not really. I understand that the King James Center reference does lead you from Acts seventeen twenty six to Deuteronomy thirty two eight, but you didn't quote the King James here. What version is this? I couldn't find it. It, it says um, to number the of the to the number. It says when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of men, He fixed the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the sons of the Almighty. Now there there are several different variations of this verse among the manuscripts. But the King James says, according to the number of the sons of Israel. So I, I, I just wondered what version you quoted here. I, I, I can't tell you. Some of, some of the versions say angels of God rather than sons of God. But there's no doubt in the next verse, when you read Deuteronomy 32.9, Deuteronomy 32.9 says, and 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 you quoted it for Yahweh's portion is his people Jacob his allotted inheritance and then you tell your cousin that doesn't sound like we are all the same before God it's very clear that the children of Israel specific a specific portion a tribe of the people do have a preference that part is very clear 
regardless of the translation in Deuteronomy 32a. Even my own King James Version, I, I have this Liberty Study Bible. You, you, you're probably using that traditional cross-reference. And, and mine's kind of newfangled. It's a Jerry Falwell Bible, right? That leads you from Acts 17.26 to Deuteronomy 32a. Harold Jr., you failed to keep the Bible entirely in its proper context by ignoring Deuteronomy 32a, as it is uh, referring only to Jacob's heritage, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes of Israel, and their descendants are a collective as, as one, like, a, like the word seed, is collective singular, not we are all the same before God. Well, well, right. The word seed is a collective singular, and, and it describes people of one particular seed. It, it's not a plural that includes everybody in the world. Your seed of your descendants, right? You, you know, this added word blood... I don't think it's it's really a big deal if if you have it there or not, even though it's not in the original manuscripts. It's certainly not. The word blood is not present in any of the old Greek manuscripts of Acts chapter 17, 26. But it seems to be a good starting point to start a conversation on the topic. But, you know, once you show somebody that the word blood isn't in Acts 17, 26, and then you bring them back to Deuteronomy 32.8. From there, you have to bring them back. Deuteronomy 32.8 talks about the, the um, apportioning of, of the land, right? When God separated the sons of men, when did that happen? That happened, that's described in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, right? So you got to get a Judeo-Christian to go from Acts 17.26 to Deuteronomy 32a. Then you got to get the Judeo-Christian back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11 from Deuteronomy 32a because that's what it's talking about, right? And Genesis chapter 10 is the one is actually Noah, right? That all those nations in Genesis chapter 10, 10 came from. So the one is actually Noah. So then from there, you have to convince a Judeo-Christian that all those nations were indeed white nations in ancient times. Now, of course, we can prove that. But how do you get a Judeo-Christian to take the time to look at it? And that leads back to dissuading the Judeo-tards of the idea that the flood covered the whole planet. There's a lot of layers here that have to be unpeeled. <laughs> how hard is it to get people from one step to the next? That's a big challenge that we have. That, that's all I'm trying to say. I'm not... Well, I, there's a lot of people out there that's in that category. Yeah, well, most of them, your cousins, right? Your uncle. Yeah. But most white Christians are in that category. They have to be pulled by the nose. How do we get them from Acts 17.26 to Deuteronomy 32.8 to Genesis chapter 10 to have them understand from history and archaeology that... 
all those nations in Genesis chapter 10 were originally white nations that there aren't no niggers, no chinks, no squat monsters in the in that table of nations. That's a huge task. We have a huge challenge. And then convince them that the whole world wasn't flooded because that's why we still have other races because the flood didn't cover the whole planet. Right. I, I'm I'm not. We we have to keep trying this. I, I I'm not um, criticizing your your attempt with your cousin. I'm commending it because this is a huge task. And if you can't get them past that first step, that the word blood ain't really there. Yeah, right. You ain't getting them nowhere. We're, we're, we can't proceed. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say, that this is a struggle that we have trying to persuade Judeotards that the Bible isn't saying what they think it's saying. And, and, and we, we got to come up with effective ways to do it. And, and it's a struggle. Well, I've tried about every way that I know of. I'm sure you have. I, I mean, it's to your credit. I'm sure you have. But we got to keep trying. So, so your cousin had um had misquoted two Peter three nine. Um. Yeah. Um. And as much as. Uh, uh, in the next cited to Peter 3.9, I will quote it from the um, King James Version. Yahweh is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Note, uh, usward doesn't sound like we are all the same before God. Uh, to see just what the correct biblical context should be, I will quote uh, Ezekiel uh, 33, 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, uh, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn ye, turn ye. Uh, from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? This doesn't sound uh, like we are all the same before God. Well, well, right. Peter said the us word. He didn't say to all word. He didn't say to everybody, right? He said to us word. He, he he means a specific group of us, not just anybody. You know, Judeotards think that, and we're going to use the hell out of that word tonight, Judeotard. Judeotards think that people can choose God. But when Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve, he was only talking to Israelites. While in the same chapter, in the same verses, he spoke of driving out of all of the other races of Canaan. He wasn't asking the Canaanites to choose you this day whom you will serve. They didn't have a choice. They were being driven out. 
they were going to be destroyed. He was only asking the Israelites, choose you this day whom you will serve. Only the Israelites had that option. The Canaanites did not have that option. And, and that choosing, I, I want to focus on that. I selected a, a, a collection of scriptures that focus on that choosing, and, and I'd like to read them, and maybe we could talk about some of them, and if you have anything to say, just flag me down. But Psalm 105, <laughs> Psalm 105, verse 6, O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye seed of Jacob, his chosen, he is Yahweh our God, his judgments are in all the earth. And then in Psalm 135, in verse 4, for Yahweh has chosen Jacob unto his self, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. And then go to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 1. For Yahweh will have mercy on Jacob, and will yet choose Israel, and set them in their own land. And then we can go to Isaiah 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, thou art my servant, I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Then we go to Isaiah chapter 44. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Yahweh that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee, fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jesurun, whom I have chosen. Then we could go to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, very specific language all throughout, right? And his Holy One, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes shall also worship, because of Yahweh who is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Then we could go to Jeremiah, to Jeremiah 33. Chapter 33, verse 24. Considerest thou not what this people have spoken, saying, The two families, meaning Israel and Judah, the two families which the Lord has chosen, has he even cast them off? Thus they have despised my people, that they should no more be a nation before them, talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians who took all the Israelites away. But he continues to choose only Israel and, and Judah. So when we get to the New Testament, Peter says in his first epistle, in 1 Peter chapter 2, but ye are a chosen generation. And that word is genos, it means race. But ye are a chosen race, a holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. This describes a people chosen by God. This does not describe a people who choose God. Where is it in the Bible that the people choose God? Only the chosen people can choose to follow God. 
as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. But not everybody can choose God because God didn't choose them. I thought you might have some input on that. I have a whole nother list of verses <laughs> that, that I want to cover and, and add to this, to this program. But the bottom line is that God chose Israel. And wherever you go in the Old Testament to see who God has chosen, you only find the children of Israel. And we're going to circle around back to that in, in a few moments, right? In the meantime, I'm going to read Psalm 74 verse from verse 1. And this is the children of Israel saying, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? So this is the Psalms, right? And the children of Israel are being described as the sheep of his pasture. Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Then we go to Psalm 79. So we thy people and sheep of thy pasture, Again, we see that the children of Israel are the sheep of the pasture, right? We'll give thee thanks forever, and we will show thee forth thy praise to all generations. Now in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. And the sheep, this is important when we get the New Testament, right? and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, and then it goes on to the provocation in the desert, and Paul quoted that passage in Hebrews. Today, if you will hear his voice, where it says, we, the children of Israel, the Israelites, are the sheep of his hand. Psalm 100, know ye that Yahweh, he is God, it is he that has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith Yahweh. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith Yahweh. So God is angry at the pastors for scattering his sheep. Then we see in Jeremiah chapter 50, a promise of the future. In those days and in that time, saith Yahweh, the children of Israel shall come. The children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together going and weeping. They shall go and seek Yahweh their God. They shall ask the way the Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves <coughs> to Yahweh in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. So we see that in Jeremiah, the children of Israel are the lost sheep, right? And, and they've already wandered all over the place. Where it says in the Psalms that the children of Israel are the sheep of his hand. 
we'll see where that really matters when we get to John chapter 17 and start to quote the words of Christ. In Ezekiel chapter 34, and, and this is a long, a, a long quote. I, I hope I don't put you to sleep, Clifton. I, I don't, Clifton's sitting here just listening to, to all these passages and mulling them around. Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. That means they'd rather feed their bellies, right? That they'd rather make rich off of the flock. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? And speaking of the sheep. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out. This is important in, in verse 13, right? And I will bring them out from the people. In other words, the sheep in that day when God gathers his sheep, they're distinct from the rest of the people. It's not just anybody who he's going to gather. He's going to bring the children of Israel, his sheep, out from the people. And gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost those lost sheep of the house of Israel, Yahweh promised to seek in Ezekiel chapter 34 as well as in Jeremiah chapter 50 and bring again that which was driven away and will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong, those people who have been feeding off the sheep, and I will feed them with judgment. Then we see in Micah chapter 2, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah and as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by the reason of the multitude of men. There will be so many sheep that are gathered, right? Matthew chapter 10. Go, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where do the sheep change? Is there any place in the Bible that you know that the identity of the sheep changed from, from the Psalms and Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Where did the identity of the sheep change? Matthew chapter 10, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew chapter 15, but he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the sheep back there in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that were lost that were described as lost. They're the same Israelites that Christ came for in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 15. But the most important, remember that Yahweh had said that the children of Israel are the sheep of his hand. 
And to me, the most significant verse here is in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Remember it said that the children of Israel are the sheep of God's hand. My father which gave them to me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So where has the identity of the sheep changed? If the father placed his sheep in the hands of Christ, aren't they the children of Israel that were the sheep of his hand in the Old Testament? Where did their identity change? Rather than Jesus, you know, rather than telling Jesus to go get new sheep, how can anyone imagine that these are different sheep? I'm just trying to to, to um, work off of your paper yeah. to come up with new ways to demonstrate that covenant theology is the absolute truth. Mm -hmm. Where did the identity of the sheep change? There's nowhere that said, oh, Jesus, go get different sheep because these sheep over here are no good. Every passage about the sheep, Yahweh promises, even long after they're scattered, because of their sin, that he's going to save those sheep. He's going to go collect those sheep and gather those sheep. How do you convince this a, a Judeo-Christian? If Yahweh put the sheep in the hands of Christ, it must be the same sheep, same sheep that he had in the Old Testament. That he identified over and over again as his lost sheep. So Christ came for the lost sheep. Did he come for different lost sheep than were lost in the Old Testament? Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> it don't say that anywhere. We could sit here, I could sit here and think up ways to laugh at Judeo-Christians all day. But how do we think up ways to make Judeo-Christians see this? Because this is the truth. That those Old Testament sheep are the same as these lost sheep a couple of years later or a couple of hundred years later that Christ came for. Clifton's just sitting here laughing at me. <laughs> He's just smiling at me. <laughs> you might want to um, move on with what you told Merrill Jr. next. Merrill Jr., I have now shot down two of your flawed premises which have led you two mistaken conclusions inasmuch as you cited Romans 2.11 I will address that one next by quoting from my KJV well, well those first two conclusions are, are where he took Acts 17.26 out of context right about one blood and, and where he took 2 Peter 3.9 out of I, I, or, or I'm sorry, he he had taken um I think I lost my way. I'm sorry. He had taken something outside of context back there, and 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 it it was the one blood, 
And the second passage, I've lost it. it it's back there somewhere in these pages. You don't have to go looking for it, Clifton. Mm -hmm. the, the second passage was 2 Peter 3, 9. Yahweh is not slack concerning his promise, but is long-suffering toward usward, not willing that any should perish. And, and he tried to apply that to the whole world rather than the specific application to the children of Israel, what, which we see in, in, as you quoted, Ezekiel chapter 33, 11, that Yahweh said, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And 2 Peter 3, 9, which Merrill tried to use universally, should be cross-referenced to that passage in Ezekiel 33, 11, which you you try to explain to Merrill, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's what Peter meant when he said that God wished for nobody to perish in 2 Peter 3, 9. So you did shoot down his first two arguments. And now you're about to shoot down the third, right? And now, Israel, what doth Yahweh the Almighty require thee? But to fear Yahweh thy Almighty, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahweh uh, thy Almighty with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Behold the heaven and the heavens of heavens is Yahweh's thy almighty and the earth also with all that there uh, all that with all that therein is. Only Yahweh hath a delight in thy fathers to love them and to choose their seed after them, even you above all the people, as it is this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be ye no more stiff-necked, for Yahweh your uh, Almighty is God, uh, uh, is God of gods and Lord of lords, a, a great God, a mighty and a terrible which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. You had some comments after that. It should be evident here that Paul was quoting the Old Testament passage at Romans uh, 2.11. Now we know who the persons are of Romans 2.11, for they are the descendants of the Israelites at Deuteronomy 10, 17 through, uh, 12 through 17. See also Acts 34, uh, Acts 10, uh, 34, and Ephesians 6, 9, as Cornelius and family were lost Israelites. Well, well, right. Cornelius and his family were indeed lost Israelites. 
And, and the point that you're making here is your cousin's misuse of, of that term, respecter of persons. And, and in almost every place that we see that term, respecter of persons in scripture, and, and James chapter 2 is probably the best example of this, it's speaking about the status of persons, that one should not be judged differently than another under the law, on account of his beauty or, or wealth or his standing in the community. If, if a man, if a rich man in your community um, breaks the law, he has to be judged just like a poor man in your community broke the same law. Only maybe once or, or twice is it used in reference or apparently can it be interpreted that it's used in reference to one's nation. But that's only because the Israelites of Judea, at the time of Christ and the apostles, were said to have no better standing than the scattered Israelites of the nations, which is what Peter is referring to in Acts chapters 10 and 11. The point of Peter's vision is that what God has cleansed, thou shalt not call common, Yahweh cleansed the children of Israel, whether they were Judeans who kept the law in the circumcision, or whether they were lost sheep who didn't keep the law or the circumcision. So Peter was to not to despise those uncircumcised people because of their status. He wasn't to despise the household of Cornelius because they weren't circumcised where historically the Judeans would never preach the Bible to people that were uncircumcised or, or, or have communion. They wouldn't even sit and eat with people that were uncircumcised. And Peter, Paul really um, chastised Peter for, for rejecting uncircumcised people later in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. So respecter of persons has everything to do with status and, and not with race. It has nothing to do with whether they're black or white or, or purple or chinkolators or squat monsters. Or, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with a person's status and standing in the community, that respecter of persons. And that's your, your, your um, passage that you chose from, from Deuteronomy chapter 10 for Yahweh, your almighty God, your almighty is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, who regards not persons nor takes rewards. That means that he doesn't, when he passes judgment, he doesn't regard the status of person, persons and he doesn't take bribes nor take rewards. Yet your um a, a topic related to that respecter of persons is the um the distinction between Jew and Gentile and, and that's the next thing that you try to address to your cousin. This leads uh us to the next portion of your letter. Into the next portion of your letter at uh, to your cousin. 
also the Jew first, also and also the Gentile. <clears throat> Romans two nine and ten is very misleading and causes much confusion. Gentile is a Latin word and was never used by any of the writers of the Old or New Testament. The term Jew has three contexts, a true member of the tribe of Judah, two, a resident of Judea, and three, an Edomite Jew, a tribe of Edomites who were converted to Judaism about 110 BC. Josephus Antiquities, book 13, uh, chapter 10, paragraph 1. And that's where it starts. I mean, Josephus goes on a, a, a few times and explains a lot of conversions of Edomites to Judaism. But it starts in Antiquities, book 10, book 13, chapter 10, where he explains that um, Hyrcanus had conquered the, the Edomites of Dora and Marisa and converted them all to Judaism. How do you explain to a Judeo-Christian that in the Old Testament, Jew means somebody of the tribe of Judah, and in the New Testament, Jew simply means a person who lives in Judea, and, and that could be an Israelite or an Edomite or, or one of a host of other people. They, they don't care about that. They're not taught about that. Their pastor doesn't tell them about that. It, it's another challenge to, to get that through to people. This is a major stumbling block with Judeo-Targs. Gentiles are made up word. If the word ethnos, that's the Greek word, right? Ethnos, it means nation. If the word was always correctly translated as nation or in plural nations, then I think it might be a lot easier to make them see what the scripture is saying, that the nations to whom the gospel was to be brought were the nations of the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's real simple. If it all said nations, but because we start seeing this word Gentiles in the New Testament, that causes confusion. I, I want to bring up something. I, I, I have another few scriptures that, that I want to elucidate here, hoping that it helps somebody bring this message to Judeotards. I don't know. You never know what's going to work with what Judeotard, right? But with which Judeo-Christian? Paul said, right in Romans chapter 2, that you just quoted from, right? In verses 13 to 15. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, there's that, there's that word, for when the nations, it should say, which do not have the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Now, the next verse is the important part. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience always bear, also bearing witness and their thoughts. The meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. 
In other words, to have just trials, right? The law was only given to Israel. And you're going to quote this later this evening, so I'm not going to quote the whole thing. But it says in Psalm 147, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. Only Israel had the law. The promise of it being written on their hearts was for those same people in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says, but this, is the, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Yahweh called Israel the people in whose heart is my law in Isaiah chapter 51. But rather than inquiring as to how Romans could be Israel. Now, Rome was a city that wasn't founded until 700 years after the Exodus. The Judeotards would rather believe that Yahweh changed his mind and never told anyone until Paul came along, which is also a lie. That's what they believe. They would rather believe that God changed his mind and didn't tell anybody until Paul came along. So nobody knew God changed his mind until Paul came along. That's what they believe. It's ridiculous. But Paul says to the Romans that the law is written in their hearts. So we should rather assume that somehow those Romans are Israelites and go study history to find out how that could be. If we really believe our Bibles, I don't know how we're going to get Judeo-Christians to do that. The law was only given to Israel. The law was only written on the hearts of the people of Israel. I don't know how we're going to get Judeo-Christians to understand that. But that's another challenge. That's a serious challenge. <clears throat> Merrill Jr., I have now contextually uh, critiqued the Bible passage you cited to uh, me in your 7, 12, 17 letter. I will now remark in regards to uh, careless interpretations made in the miniature two and a half by two booklet you sent me with 16 pages published by Amazing Grace Mission, Dayton, Tennessee, uh, and distributed by the First Baptist Church, Shabetsville, Ohio. Did, did you measure this booklet? <laughs> I had to. You measured the booklet so that you could write it in your paper how big yeah, it is. It's a tiny booklet, two and a half by two and a half inches by two inches. Yeah. It's kind of, kind yeah, of I small. To, I measured it. <laughs> okay. You can start with what the booklet says. I don't know how the hell you read it. It was so small, but you can start to tell us what it said. Um the book was supposed to uh, said, uh, do you ever feel like uh, nobody cares? Well, God cares. He knows all about you and he sends you, uh, you this message. What is a Christian? Are you a Christian? After you have answered this question, 
read the next four Bible verses, then you will know whether you're, you really are a Christian as taught by the word of God. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Here the Amazing Grace mission first cites Romans 3.23 out of context, so I will now quote it here from the KJV. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of Yahweh. In answer to this citation, I will now quote Amos 3.2 thusly. You Israel only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Yahweh cannot chastise unless that person already belongs to him. When Abraham placed Isaac on the altar, Isaac and all of his descendants became the personal property of Yahweh, and if they um, disobeyed his commandments, he could punish them as he says, as he saw fit. Also Psalm 78.4, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded your fathers, that you should make them known to their children. You want to go any further than that? Yeah, you need one more little paragraph. Right also Psalm uh, 147, Nine, uh, verses 19 and 20, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. So where Paul says that all have sinned, he can only mean all of Israel. If only Israel ever had the law, you know, Paul himself said in Romans chapter 5, for until the law, meaning from the time of Adam to the time of Sinai, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. So if Yahweh doesn't impute your sins to you, he doesn't need to forgive you. It's that simple. And that's according to Paul. So if sin was never imputed to anyone who didn't have the law, how could any people besides Israel ever need to be forgiven for their sins? There isn't any. They never had sin because they never had the law, according to Paul. I, I, Judeo-Christian, they are Judeo-tards. They don't think about, that. they don't contemplate the scripture. They can't. Or, or, or you'd think they'd trip over some of these things, right? You really think they would. Have you ever relied or taken anything that belonged to someone else? Well, well you're, you're, you're continuing to quote from Amazing Grace Mission, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing Grace Mission continues by stating, Have you ever... Lied or taken anything that 
belong to somebody else, then you have sin, haven't you? The Bible says, for the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans uh, 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 23. That's right. Sin separates us from God. And, and that's where, where is that in the Bible? The, the Bible actually only teaches that sin separated the children of Israel from God. And since Israel, only Israel ever had the law, only Israel was ever accountable for their sins. Sin separated the children of Israel from God. It never said that sin separated Brazilians from God or Mexicans or Nigerians or Eskimos. <laughs> They're not even in a picture. Okay. Did it ever say that sin separated the Egyptians from God? No. Nope. Never said that. Did it ever say that sin separated the Persians from God? They were in the Bible. It never said that. It never said sin separated the Canaanites from God. It only said that sin separated the children of Israel from God. And there's no sin without the law. Right. If you die in your sins, we are eternally lost forever, separated from God. But God offers another way since you now admit your sins and Jesus is the only way you can have eternal life free as a gift. This means we can't earn it by being good or by going to church or by baptism or anything else. We simply receive it as a free gift through Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God. The Bible says, but as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. This kind of coincides with my, um, my presentation of that chapter. But, but they, they're saying here, because you're still reading from this little Amazing Grace Mission booklet, they're saying that if anybody admits their sin, they're going to become a son of God. So a Chinaman who never had the law, who was never expected to have the law, to whom sin was never imputed, a Chinaman, if he says, oh, I sinned, he becomes the son of God, magically. That's basically what they're saying. But that's not what the Bible, that's not even anywhere as close to what the Bible teaches. It's a most difficult task to approach a Judeo-tard, a Judeo-Christian, with the concept that a verse of scripture could possibly have been mistranslated. <laughs> you're, that they think that you're blaspheming when you talk like that. So even though we can assert that John 1.12 really says but as many who received him, he gave to them the authority which the children of Yahweh are to attain, are to come to have, to those believing in his name. And it was only talking about the, the, the Israelite people in Judea. Here you sought a, a different way to 
to address this verse. But as many as received him, um, the amazing grace mission, as quoted John uh, 1, 12, out, uh, out of context. So I will now quote it here from the KJV. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of Yahweh, even to them that believe on his name. My KJV center reference directs me to Galatians 3.12, and I will quote verses uh, 26 and 29. For ye are all the children of Yahweh by faith in Christ Yahshua, and if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. The Amazing Grace Mission has butchered John 1, 2 out of context beyond all reason by identifying the who of this passage and the who are Abraham's seed and no other. This is simply cherry picking of the uh, scriptures by the Amazing Grace Mission. It is important that we know the who, what, where, when, why, and how of every passage of Scripture in the Bible. You know, even the references to Abraham's seed in Galatians are twisted out of context and poorly translated. I think that if we were confined to the King James Version, if we didn't have any other version, we can't check the translation that perhaps Galatians chapter 3 is best clarified in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul said, in part, I'm only going to read a small part, two and a half verses. Verse um, 13, I think part of verse 15 and verse 18. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then where he went on to say that, to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. And then who against hope, speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. That's what Abraham believed. According to that which is spoken. And this is the most important part. So shall thy seed be. There it should be clear that many nations did not somehow become Abraham's seed, but that Yahweh kept his promise, and Abraham's seed became many nations. Those nations are the so-called Gentiles. That was the whole point of the birth, to, birth of Isaac to parents who were nearly 100 years old in the first place. That was the whole point, was that Abraham's physical seed would be his heir. That's why Sarah had to bear a child at 90, and Abraham fathered a child at 100. You're 91. How would you like to be faced with that challenge? <laughs> to have a child now. <laughs> That's 
you look at yourself and think, that's an incredible thing for Sarah to have a baby at 90. That's the amazing um, aspect of scripture is that Yahweh went to those great lengths to make sure that Abraham's heir came from his loins to put that woman through having a baby at 90. <laughs> I'm sure maybe Abraham didn't find it all too much a challenge, but Sarah must have. <laughs> so that's, that, that's an, an aspect of, of scripture that the Judeo-Christians just throw away. They throw it away because they diminish the importance of it. Abraham tried to substitute for his seed, right? He told Yahweh, what about Eleazar? He's a cool guy. He was born in my house. And Yahweh said, no, he ain't good enough. It has to be from your loins. But now the Judeo churches want to pick Eleazar and tell Yahweh that Eleazar is good. That, that to me, uh, uh, they're, they're just denying the entire scripture. The who of the promise is spelled out quite clearly at Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and Hebrews 8, uh, verses 8 through 10. Both passages read almost word for word, so I will quote Jeremiah. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And I got... Uh, all 12 tr uh, tribes in parentheses. Uh, after those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their almighty and they shall be my people. Yeah, you had some comments after that quotation. You might you might want to speak about the gravity of of that quotation okay. of scripture. There's absolutely no uh, uh, here, no room here for mud sharks, squat monsters, or whosoever to be squeezed into the kingdom of Yahweh in the flesh, who is uh, in the person of. Yahshua the Christ, the anointed. Uh, once Yahweh has given us his sacred word in a covenant, he will not uh, alter that uh, the beneficiaries of that covenant. Uh, as uh, Malachi 3 6 uh, distinctly states, For I am Yahweh, I change not, therefore. The sons of Jacob are not consumed.
So, so the above covenant, as you concluded, still stands and, and will continue to remain forever. It, it doesn't change. That, that promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah, where does it talk about Gentiles? Does it say anything about Gentiles in Jeremiah 31? I, I guess you're not answering because you can't find it, right? Well, I was thinking uh, Gentile really is in the word. It's uh, <laughs> There's no, no place in the Bible that has it. Well, well that's my point. This passage, this passage to me, is one of the four, and, and we talked about this yesterday when we talked about doing this program, is one of the four most important points in the Bible that demonstrate the truth of covenant theology. There's four very important points, especially since the Judeotards, the, the Judeo-Christians, always try to appeal to Paul, right? Jeremiah 31 is the promise of a new covenant made exclusively to the people with whom the old covenant was made and nobody else. It doesn't say to the house of Judah and the house of Israel and the Gentiles. It only says to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. That is confirmed in Ezekiel chapter 37 where it says in verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, speaking of the Israelites. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and the nation shall know, or the heathen in the King James Version, shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them, in the midst of Israel, forevermore. So we have Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel chapter 37. And Jeremiah 31 explicitly uses the term new covenant. But Ezekiel chapter 37 says only, I will make a covenant. It doesn't use the term new covenant, but it must be a new covenant. If Yahweh is going to make a covenant in the future with Israel, it must be a new covenant. So that's two witnesses of this new covenant between Yahweh and Israel that's going to last forevermore. Then in the New Testament, it's confirmed in Hebrews chapter 8, where Paul cited verbatim the promise of a new covenant for the houses of Judah and Israel found in Jeremiah chapter 31. Paul cited a huge, like five or six verses of that promise, verbatim, mentioning that the new covenant was going to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And Paul didn't add Gentiles. Paul didn't add anybody else to that when he quoted that passage. So Paul really didn't change anything. Then the fourth most important point. In Romans chapter 9, Paul attested that the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises are for Israelites. And not just for some phony, made-up spiritual Israelites. 
He said that they are for Israelites. Whose are the fathers? Israelites, whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So these Israelites have to be related to Christ concerning the flesh or by the flesh. So the Israelites to whom belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises are the children of the fathers who first received those same things. Because non-Israelite Gentiles never belonged to the fathers. Those four points, Romans 9, Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 37. That's four witnesses to covenant theology that can't be refuted, that are absolutely explicit. And Judeo Targe just ignored them. Can we tie Merrill down and beat him over the head with that? Would it do any good? Amazing Grace Mission continues thusly. Suppose you had an incurable disease and one day you needed, you read of a doctor who had discovered a cure for that disease. I suppose he offered to give you uh, this cure free. Uh, what would you answer? What would your answer be? Receive it and be cured or refuse it and be lost. You have, you can have faith that doctor's medicine will cure you but unless you receive it personally, you will still you are still lost. Have you taken the step of faith to receive Jesus Christ personally as your Savior? Jesus says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him." Uh, Revelation chapter three, verse twenty. You know, I got to in interrupt you again that they take Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 out of context. If you read Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, in this statement immediate pro immediately prior to that, Christ had said, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So Christ said that the father gave him the sheep. And he said that the father loves him because he laid down his life for the sheep. In Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophecy of Christ, we read the children of Israel portrayed as having said, all we like sheep have gone astray. And only the children of Israel were ever considered to be sheep. Just before the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read, Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel when I went to cause him to rest. 
Yahweh has appeared of old unto me, saying, Yeah, I have loved thee, speaking to Israel. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with everlasting kindness have I drawn thee. Again, I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, tabres, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Yahweh never said that he loved anyone besides Israel. So in Revelation chapter 13, I'm sorry, chapter 3 that you're citing here, verses 19 and 20, Christ must be referring to any man of Israel when he says any man. Comparing Peter's epistles to the locations of the churches in the Revelation, it's easy to determine that these are the same people that Peter had referred to as a chosen race, a royal generation, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. They were a portion of the scattered Israelites from 800 years before. You can't just take that one verse of Revelation chapter 20 and imagine that anybody that comes along and knocks will be answered. But that's basically what they're doing. They're taking the entire thing out of all of the biblical context and, and they're imagining that anybody that knocks on their imaginary door that, that wants to love Jesus is going to be answered and Jesus will love him. Amazing Grace Mission added this comment. When the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door, he is speaking about the very door of your heart. If you, if your best friend knocked at your door, uh, uh, knocked at the door of your house, uh, what would you say to him? You, you would say to him, Come in, wouldn't you? Like the word blood is not in Acts 17.26, neither is the word heart at Revelation 3.20. Yeah, you know, what about the parable of the ten virgins? When the, the, um, when the bridegroom shows up, and five of the virgins were off in the market. And the other five were still in the room because they had oil in their lamps. And they let the bridegroom in and they locked the door. So then a short time later, the other five virgins that were off in the market get their oil and they show up knocking at the door. And they're knocking. And Christ tells them to get lost. He tells them to beat it. Scram. I never knew you. Not everybody that knocks at the door is going to get let in, as these um, that these people at the Amazing Grace Mission claim. <laughs> so it's just simply not true. <laughs> so what we all need to carry around a lamp of oil for the rest of our lives, just in case he shows up, right? We need a literal lamp with literal oil in it. So that we don't get caught without oil in our lamps. Is that what he's talking about? <laughs> Should everybody in the world carry an oil lamp around? 
make sure it's full of oil. Don't lose none of it. <laughs> or you're going to get locked out and he's going to tell you to beat it. I don't care. Scram. <laughs> he doesn't open the door for everybody that knocks. Otherwise, he's a liar when he gives the parable of the ten virgins. They're making up a story. They're just making a story up out of scripture and, and saying whatever suits them. Judeo-Tars are incredible. They just make up stories. The most deceitful part of, of, of this claim is that the message in, in Revelation 3, 19 and 20, that was originally meant for the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. That message wasn't for Bushman or Redman or Chinaman or, or any other kind of man. It was for Laodiceans. So, so my point is that the Judeo-Tards simply um, say whatever's convenient for them to say. They don't care about the, the, the context of Scripture at all. They'll take any verse and make a story up about it. The Amazing Grace mission continues by uh, asserting Jesus said he is not with me is against me. I got the right one. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, he, he that is not with me is against me. Matthew 12, verse 30. Who is a Christian? You are a Christian if you saw your... You are a Christian if you saw your, your need of help and accepted Jesus as your the only way and personally invited Jesus Christ to become Lord of your life. Now that you have prayed and received Jesus, uh, where is he right now? Answer, he is in your heart and life. How do you know? Jesus said, I will come in Revelation 3 verse 20. And the first letter of John, chapter 5, verses 11 and 13. God can now accept you into his family because all your sins, past, present, and future, have been placed on his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God was in Christ no longer can continuing man's sin, sins again, counting man's sins against them, but blotting them out. For God took the sinless Christ and laid him, laid on him our sins. Then he, uh, in exchange, he gave God, God's goodness to us. That that's that they're taking um one John five eleven to thirteen totally out of context. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his son. And he that has the son has life, and he that has not the son has not life. So if you just say that I believe and and I sinned, 
then the sun has to come into your heart and you have life. That's what they're saying. It, it's a childish, it's a very childish view of the meaning of the scriptures that lifts a, a few passages here and there out of context and puts them into their own narrative, a very childish, simplistic narrative that really has nothing to do with the original scriptures at all. If Christ said, I come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and if you think otherwise, then you're not with him. How could you claim to be with him? You're not with him, and if you're not with him, then you must be against him. Just, what, what I'm saying is just imagining that he came for anyone else other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You're scattering and you're not gathering. You're co acting contrary to him. He that gathereth not scattereth. And, and that's exactly what they're doing. It, it's incredible how they just cherry pick just a couple of scriptures and build their own narrative on those scriptures. But that's what they've done. I think they have two or three scriptures that, that are really um, not related and, and they just stick them together and say, see that if this happens, that'll happen. If you do this, then God will do that because you can tell God what to do and move the hand of God if you do this. That's basically what they're doing. They're telling you that you're in control rather than admitting that God's in control. Under the covenants of the Bible. Well, well you have a, a, um, a, an important question there that feeds right into what we've been saying here. Uh, now I must ask just who accepts or chooses whom. Under the covenants of the Bible, Almighty uh, Yahweh chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob called Israel and all the 12 tribes of Israel, or 13, depending on how you may count them, and all of their pure genetic descendants. And that is what is meant by the phrase covenant theology. Uh, if one is under this biblical covenant, he cannot choose not to be under it. On the other hand, if one is not under the biblical covenant he cannot choose to somehow be included under under it only those who are under the biblical covenant can be considered christians meaning anointed ones from their uh, conception the uh, amazing grace mission is teaching just the opposite by giving the children's bread to the dogs matthew 1526 or replacement theology plain and simple <clears throat> the amazing grace mission then cited revelation 320 out of context and I will quote it 
hear from the KJV, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To get a handle on the proper context, I will cite Luke uh, 12, verses 36 and 37 from my KJV. And ye yourselves like unto men, and ye yourselves like unto men that wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, then may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants who, whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and, and uh, make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Also Matthew twenty-two, thirteen and thirteen. Twelve and, and thirteen, I'm sorry. Huh? 12, Matthew twenty-two verses twelve and thirteen. Twelve twenty-two, twelve and thirteen. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throughout time immemorial, wedding garments have been white, but what we have here is a mud shark, squat monster, non-white, half-breed, i.e. bastard, or whosoever, uh, crashing the wedding party. That, that's exactly what we have is somebody somebody without a wedding garment. You know, all these people that, that were in a wedding were dragged off the street. None of them had wedding garments. None of them expected to go to a wedding. That was the lost sheep of the house of Israel. None of the lost sheep of the house of Israel were waiting for a wedding. Cornelius wasn't waiting for a wedding. The Roman... These people weren't waiting for weddings. They found this message and they were dragged off the street. And out of all the people dragged off the street, somebody didn't have a wedding garment. So he must have been a, a, a nigger or a squat monster or a mud shark or, or, or whatever. You, <laughs> however you want to classify him here, according to what you said. Yet, you know, these are what the apostles Peter and Jude both described as spots, spots in our feasts of charity, and evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed, spots and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with us. These niggers that think that they could be like white people and sit and feast with white people and be the same as white people, they're deceiving themselves thinking that they could possibly be 
Christians thinking that they could possibly be one of us. A lot of us might be deceived too by accepting them, but they're deceiving themselves. These Jews in our society trying to be like us, according to Peter and Jude, 2 Peter chapter 2 and, and the whole epistle of Jude, they are spots and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with us. That means they're deceiving themselves, thinking that they could be one of us, and they can't. They can't possibly be Christians. Also, Matthew 8, uh, verses 10 and 11, which I will cite from the KJV. When Yahshua heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of uh, the... Uh, but the children of the sick, this, in other words, this kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, you said the children of the kingdom, you have sick, this kingdom. You're saying that it should refer to this kingdom as distinct from the kingdom of heaven. That this kingdom, the, the kingdom in Judea, what was a totally different thing, separate um, entity from the kingdom of, of heaven. And, and you explain why here. Note the following, the Smith and Goodspeed Bible version where the uh, kingdom of verse uh, 11 is capitalized while the kingdom of verse 12 is not capitalized indicating two different kingdoms. When the KJV didn't, where the KJV didn't make this uh, uh, detail quite so clear. Therefore, I adjusted this feature uh, with the uh, KJV for the reader's benefit. Well, you had me look into the Christogenian New Testament now because I'd, I'd like to see how I translated it. But in any event, in, in any event, the, the kingdom that Christ was referring to in reference, it, reference to Judea certainly wasn't the, the, um, the kingdom of heaven, right? Not by any means. It, it certainly was a separate kingdom. The, the, the Greek won't let me make the distinction, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outermost darkness. And the Judeans, even the Edomites in Judea, they believed that they were the people of God. They believed that. That they didn't believe that there was any distinction whatsoever between themselves and the true Israelites. And that's their attitude throughout the entire New Testament. 
you don't see anybody in in Judea, and we know historically that the Sadducees were were Edomites, and that a lot of the other rulers and leaders, Herod, that all of the family of Herod were Edomites, but they had a, a brazen attitude where they, and, and this is clear all throughout the pages of Josephus, where they really thought that they were as good as the Israelites and, and could share in, in this heritage with the Israelites. There's nowhere in Josephus or in the New Testament where you see an Edomite admitting, oh, I'm only an Edomite. I really don't belong in this kingdom. That there's nowhere. It, it's that the Jews have the same attitude today. Ask any Jew on the streets of New York, are you an American? Yeah, I'm an American. Are you an American the same as the Americans who's, who descended from the founders of this country? They'll never admit that they're different. That they'll they'll think that they have they should have all the rights and privileges of anybody else. They can't see. They don't think like we do. They don't have that distinction in their minds. So so where Christ said that the sons of this of, of the kingdom will be cast out, he's talking about those people in Judea who think that they're legitimate. They think that they're legitimate rulers and legitimate high priests. And Christ is going to say that they're cast out. It, it's clear in the histories that the kingdom had been usurped since the time of Herod. That's why Christ told them, the people that opposed him, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. He didn't say you're not my sheep so because you don't believe me. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what the Judeotards think. Oh, they weren't his sheep anymore because they didn't believe him. But he told them just the opposite. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. So, of course, they're bound to be cast out. They were destined to be cast out from the beginning. But the Judeo-Tards don't understand that because they're not taught the difference between Israelites and Edomites. They're just not taught that. That they don't even understand that. Have you ever read, all right, you've read a lot of Bible commentaries. I know you have. We have them all here on the shelf now. But we had to buy five big, nine-foot-tall by 48-inch-wide bookshelves to fit them all. Have you ever read in a Bible commentary that those people in Judea were not Israelites, that they were Edomites? No. You've never read that. Have you ever read in a Bible commentary that there were Edomites in Judea? I'm asking. I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't read the commentaries you have. <laughs> Do you remember well, I reading trying, that? I'm just trying to think in my mind. Did, did I, uh, I? I don't think so. You probably never read it in a Bible commentary that there were Edomites in Judea. I'm sure you probably haven't. But it's perfectly clear in Romans chapter 9, and it's perfectly clear in Antiquities book 13, and it's perfectly clear in Strabo of Cappadocia's Geography book 16. It's right there in black and white in three different sources that there are Edomites in Judea. But it's not in any biblical commentary. Why? 
Why is that? <laughs> That's how good the truth is buried. That's the point I'm trying to get at. Mm -hmm. It's right there in plain sight. It's in Strabo, it's in Josephus, and it's in Paul. It's right there in plain sight. And nobody knows it except two seed line Christian identity people. And we're just a tiny mi minority. Well, well, I think that's um, I think that's pretty amazing. With I, I, I mean, I know you don't need the rant, but I still have to make it here. Uh, I do. That now I'm probably losing your place. Finally, the Amazing Grace Mission cites Matthew twelve thirty out of context. And I will quote verse 30 and 31 here from my KJV. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be given unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. The Amazing Grace Mission should have taken notice of the word uh, wherefore, as it uh, makes a direct union connecting verse 30 and 31 together, and to quote only half a passage, as Amazing Grace Mission did, without the balance of the passage shows scholastic dishonesty. To make a long story short, blasphemy against the Holy Ghost is race mixing. First John 3 9 from my KJV, whosoever is born of Yahweh doth not commit sin for his seed, i.e. sperm, remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of Yahweh. The Almighty Yahweh uh, commanded against the sin of Exodus 2014, quoting from the KJV, Thou shalt not commit adultery, which is the Greek for the New Testament is covered under the term fornication. You know, if, if they read Revelation chapter 3, they should have also read Revelation chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 2, Christ is talking about Jezebel, who taught his servants to commit fornication. And because Jezebel, using he's using Jezebel as an allegory, because Jezebel taught his servants to commit fornication, he was going to take Jezebel and those who commit fornication with her and cast them onto a couch and put them into tribulation. And then he says, I will kill their children with death. So in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says that he will kill the children of fornicators. If you told most Judeo-Christians that Jesus kills children, they would think that you have six heads and you need to be put in prison. They would think you're nuts. But Jesus says it right there in Revelation chapter 2 that he's going to kill the children of fornicators. 
and they're race mixers. That that's uh, I mean, if you read Revelation chapter three, you got to read Revelation chapter two. And if you could read that without realizing that Jesus kills children, when it says it right there in plain language, and not wonder why Jesus would kill children. Jesus loves everybody. Why would he kill little children? That's the, the, the disconnect that these Judeo-Tards have. It's a total disconnect that they can't put that together. We're about done with this with this question. Merrill Jr., neither your letter nor uh, the booklet published by Amazing Grace Mission brought up the Bible term redemption. Uh, this is important as only a kinsman can redeem another kinsman's so to be redeemed by uh, Yeshua Christ, uh, one must be a blood relative to Christ that is in his family tree. Uh, the subject of kinsman redemption is clearly spelled out in Leviticus uh, 25 uh, verses 48 and 49, which I will quote from my KJV. After that, uh, he is sold, he may redeem, be redeemed again. Uh, one, one of his brothers may redeem him, either his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he is able, he may redeem himself. At Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we find more on redemption in context with the scripture. Who is delivered, who has, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son and whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Amazing Grace Mission has everything backwards as we uh, definitely can't receive Christ as Savior and Lord uh, of life, but we must trust that we are redeemed, i.e. purchased back 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we don't accept Christ, rather he accepted us and we accept his uh, redemption or purchasing us back unto his sheepfold from whence we were divorced. C.F. Hosea uh, 2.7 And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. Uh, uh, you know, I have Yahweh in um, brackets. Uh, for then it was better than for me than now. 
Here we have Yahweh and the 12 tribes of Israel as husband and wife, but Yahweh's own law forbids a wife to return to her first husband after being divorced, as at Deuteronomy 24.1, which states, when a man hath taken a wife and married her, and he uh, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be uh, another man's wife. So Yahweh decided to come in the flesh so that he could die and thereby be able to, by his own law, to remarry the 12 tribes of Israel back to himself by his redemption. Generally, what is not understood uh, in nominal churchanity is that uh, is the momentous fact that Yahweh, the Almighty Yahweh, created only the white Adamic race, and even race, and that the other races are a corruption of fallen angels with the animal kind, and even Adamic kind in Genesis. Uh, 6, 1 through 4. Uh, Yahshua Christ stated at Matthew fifteen ten, but he answered and said, the, and I got Pharisees in, in bracket, and said, every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. At Jeremiah 15, we find, Yet I have planted thee, Judah, a noble vine, uh, holy, a right, pure white racial seed. How art thou turned into this degenerate race mixed plant of a strange vine to me, i.e., Hebrew knockery uh, vine unto me? No strange of the very stranger of the very uh, first time. Yeah, yeah, you're saying that that strange, that plant of a strange vine under me, because Judah had turned into a plant of a strange vine. That's a knockery, that word strange, and, and there you're noting that it's strange of the worst kind. And it's not a close encounter of the third kind, it's a strange plant of the worst kind. <laughs> Evidently, Amazing Grace Mission has not studied the parables and idioms found in the Bible, which Christ uh, purposely used so uh, the degenerate plants wouldn't grasp them. Well, well right. Those de degenerate plants, those race-mixed people, what we had the Edomites in Judea, what we had 
problems in, in Judah before that with race mixing all the way back in the days of Jeremiah. That's what you're pointing out here. And, and Christ spoke in parables so that those people would not understand him. And that's how he told them. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. And, and today, even in the Revelation, he said that he was going to kill the children of the fornicators. God doesn't change. Race mixing is against his law, and none of those race-mixed people are going to survive. The word is not for them. It was never for them, and it can't be for them. If, if, if you were, um, if, well, if you were, you're, you're a devout Christian, you want to find out what that fornication is in Revelation chapter 2 because you don't want to be one of those people cast onto a couch and put through tribulation. You want to find out what that fornication is so that you know whether or not children that you have are going to be worthy of God. They just don't think in those terms. There's a lot of layers to unpeel to reach a Judeo-Christian. I, I don't, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you have to get them to listen to that first one. Like I said at the beginning, you have to get them to find out that blood's not in Acts 17.26. And take them to the next step and the next step. And hold them by the hand and take them to the next step. If, if, if they're not willing to go along like your cousin Merrill, that they're lost. <laughs> they're going to stay lost. Can you remember your defining moment that convinced you of Christian identity? Uh, What's the first thing you heard that you thought, hey, I got to check this out? I think I, uh, I read uh, something by Armstrong. Remember the, the worldwide Herbert W. Armstrong, Worldwide Church of God. Yeah, but I I uh, I didn't trust him, so I looked for other. Why didn't you trust him? I'm just curious. I just didn't. Was did did you think he was a huckster? No, I uh, I I just I wasn't impressed by it, but I I. I I, I found out uh, who we were, you know, through through Armstrong. Okay. And uh, but I didn't trust him. I had you. You want to have more proof on it, so I started looking for more proof. Okay. So you just didn't trust him. That that's how I that that's how I came along in my studies. I, I read a few CI books, and I thought, well, I don't want to read these CI books anymore. I, I want to read what they read. And go learn it for myself to see if it was true, right? I guess that's how we end up where we're at today. <laughs> well, Clifton, it's been good. And, and I want to thank you for this. And, and it's always good to have you on. What you got to say about that? Well, I, I'm uh, thankful to be on and, and uh, give my two cents worth. Yeah, we'll have you on again soon, I think. We'll just have to get you to write the sequel. No reply. No. Yeah. <laughs>
thanks for being here, Clifton. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening, everybody. Good night.